It's the amazing Rico Bronya podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. All right, everybody. Rico Bronya time. What else is new? The Mets play a three game series. They lose a three game series. They may have teased you for a little bit. You may have gotten giddy. Ooh, Max Scherzer looks great. Ooh, the Mets scored 11 runs. And then reality slapped us across the face. Framber Valdez dominated. Justin Verlander was average. And then the Mets managed to lose a finale of this three-game series that you could tell from the top of the first inning they were going to lose. It didn't matter when they took the lead. It didn't matter when they fought back. There was no point in this game. And now, granted, I'm watching this game while doing a radio show with Craig Carton, but there was no point in this game where any of us thought the Mets were going to win. So the Mets lose two out of three to the Houston Astros. They are now a season-high six games under 500. They have dropped, I mean, I don't even know how many games out of first place anymore. I've lost count. 13, 14, 17, Tweedledee, Tweedledum, doesn't matter. They have buried themselves in the wild card race. They're seven games out. That's a lot, especially with as many teams that are ahead of them. And it's just an incredibly depressing time. We are witnessing a free fall here in June that I honestly don't think any of us could have seen coming. Because even though this team has played badly since really the end of the San Francisco series, which dates back to late April, 14-7 and was the high-water mark of this season. They were playing so well on that West Coast trip, sweeping Oakland, winning two out of three against LA, the first two against San Francisco. And certainly, you can go back to that point to when this team started playing badly. I think the real shock is the Toronto series because the Mets had just swept the Phillies. They were 30-27. and They were three and a half games out of first place. And it looked like everything was at least at the minimum fine. Like maybe they weren't going to take off, take off, but they had steadied the ship. They get swept by Toronto where they can't hit. They go to Atlanta where they blow huge leads every night. They lose two out of three to Pittsburgh. They get the worst split ever against the Yankees. They managed to fix the St. Louis Cardinals by losing two out of three. And now they've managed to fix the Astros. Because the Astros were a complete mess going into this three-game series, and Houston wins two out of three. And what is so deeply concerning, (laughs) that which is an understatement to use the term deeply concerning, is that now when they have these games, like Wednesday, where they score eight runs, and they show fight, and the offense chases a real good pitcher in Christian Javier, they somehow lose. Before we get into these games, think about this. The Mets scored eight runs on Wednesday and lost. Eight runs. On Sunday against the Cardinals, they scored seven runs and lost. In the first game against the Yankees, they scored six runs and lost. In the opener against the Pirates, they scored seven runs and lost. In the finale against the Braves, they scored wait for it, 10 runs and lost. You go back to that game in Colorado where they lost 11-10, they scored 10 runs and lost. The day before that, they scored seven runs and lost. So there are many reasons for why this team sucks, many reasons. But the lead 
is the fact that when they score runs, they can't pitch. To have that many games, like I just mentioned, where you score eight runs or 10 runs or seven runs or six runs, and you lose is almost remarkable. Almost remarkable. So before we get into these games, we'll get into all three of these games. We'll look ahead to the weekend against Philadelphia and what can be done. Right now at six games under 500, are you, Pete Hoffman, willing to admit we're effed? I wanted to say the word. I don't want to say it. I want to try to clean things, clean this place up. Would you admit we're effed? I, I don't want to admit it yet. I feel terrible. I'm depressed. Um, it's tough to to have a positive outlook. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say that there's, you know, this is going to be a crazy turnaround and things are going to get better. But I look at it this way. There's an old Boomer Esiason saying, (laughs) one shift, one period, one game. And this sucks that we couldn't win a series against the Cardinals or the Astros who were both struggling. That's terrible. But if you look at the big picture, there's still, what, 20-something, 20-plus series left in the season. I'm getting sick of this, Pete, though. I mean, we, we could talk all day about how much time there is left, and you're right, there's a lot of time left, but... Has this team given you any indication that they're going to turn it around? No, no. And but th- my point is this: is I'm not trying to, to to say like all this still a forever part of the season. My point is this: is all they have to start doing is win a series. If you can win, I know it's a lot, but if you win 15 to 16 series, in the end, you're going to be 10 games over 500. That, that, that's I- that's fine, and that's true, and that's great math. <laughs> They haven't won a road series since <laughs> April. Like, it's not as easy as saying, go win a series. I mean, I thought when they won the opener and Max Scherzer dominated, and I want to give him credit. Like, we will give people credit when they deserve it. Max Scherzer was brilliant in the opener of this series. It was right in front of him. Hey, if they can get a split on Tuesday, Wednesday, they win a series. And as much as this team needs a winning streak and they need a 10 out of 12 more than just winning a series, you got to swim before you can swim really fast. (laughs) I'm sorry. You know what I mean? You got to get in the pool before you can become Tommy Phelps or Michael Phelps, not Tommy Phelps, or David Phelps. Phelps. Oh, my God. (laughs) I I did an experiment, by the way. Uh, for I didn't do it today with McGill because at this point in time there was no point doing the experiment. But on, on I wanted to see the trust level of the fan base with the starting pitching, and though Scherzer was like forty or fifty pitches deep in the fifth and sixth inning, I still put it out there. Would you tr- trust? Would you put if you're Buck? Do you put Scherzer back out there? Do you put Scherzer back out there? Right. And everyone's calling me a bunch of morons and saying, "Of course, he look at his pitch count. Look at this. Look at that." But as soon as the eighth inning came around and they, you know, he had given up a, a home run, walked the guy or whatever it is, it was questionable. And people started to like not not be as 90% go for it. Right. Verlander, though, the Verlander, though, was a different start. People were, as soon as he had that rough inning, it's like the, the trust level is, is already there. And that's the thing with Scherzer and Verlander to a T. It could drop like that. Like their their eliteness deflates super quick. You can't trust anybody right now. 
Well, I, I'll give this to Max and Justin to a degree. They will occasionally remind you of what they can do. You know, you go back to the opener of this series, which feels like six months ago, based on the way game two and game three went. Max Scherzer against the Houston Astros. Granted, it's not a full-strength Astros team. Uh, the Mets have actually scored more runs than the Astros, or at least coming into this series, they were basically averaging the same amount of runs. Uh, they're without Jordan Alvarez, which we can't dismiss. They do have Altuve back now full-time after missing the first couple of months of the season. But Max Scherzer went out, and in game one of this series, flat-out dominated. He was great. He was helped out by some good defense. Brett Beatty made that incredible diving play in the first inning of this game. Uh, Tommy Pham made some good plays in the outfield. But Max Scherzer was efficient. Max Scherzer was getting them to chase his slaughter. We saw that in the very first at-bat when Jose Altuve's diving at a slaughter low and away, and he struck him out on three pitches. We saw an elite Max Scherzer. The Mets gave him some offense. It didn't look like they were going to get it because Hunter Brown in the first two innings of this game looked dominant. And I'm sitting there on my ass thinking, oh, here we go. This is going to be matching zeros all night until Max gives up a home run. And the Mets shockingly exploded in that third inning. Daniel Vogelback, who had a, a really good series, I'll hand it to him. We'll give credit where credit is due. Hit the home run that kind of, it was a home run that stayed in the air forever. Reminds me of the old major league. It's too high. It's too high. This one wasn't too high. And it really set the tone for that fifth inning, gave him the early lead. They put some hits together. Francisco Lindor hit a three-run home run, ended up having a huge offensive game, driving in five runs. It was an odd feel-good game. It was a feel-good game from the offense because not only did they score the five runs in the third inning, but they were able to tack some runs on. They get an RBI single by Jeff McNeil in the sixth. They blow the game open in the ninth. And Max was elite, you know, outside of... A little bit of trouble in the sixth, but he got a big strikeout, a solo home run, a Yiner Diaz in the seventh. He probably could have gone nine, if we're being honest. His pitch count was low. Uh, it was very low, 62 through six innings, and he was just flying right along. It was, I don't want to say it's his best performance as a Met. It wasn't. I think that game in Milwaukee coming off the IL last year probably was when he pitched essentially a perfect game until he was taken out, but he was great. I mean, Scherzer was great. The offense was great. And I guess we all kind of thought the same thing in the ninth inning when they were piling it on, which was save a couple of runs, especially knowing they were facing Framber Valdez the next day, who I've said to you, it's either him, Garrett Cole, most consistent best pitcher in the sport right now. Shane McClanahan's up there too. But in terms of consistency, in terms of getting the baseball every five days, Framber's up there. So as the Mets are piling up all these runs in the opener of this series, in the back of my mind, even though it, I, I know one game has nothing to do with the other, like, obviously, save runs is not a real thing. It's not as if the bats only have a certain amount of hits in it. But as they were piling it on in the ninth inning, and Daniel Vogelback drove in two more runs, and Lindor drove in two more runs, there is that thought in all of our brains, which was, hey, we got this one. Can we take it easy? And it was a nice win. But, but I said this on the air the next day, which was, it's a nice win. It doesn't change my view on the team. Like as much as we treat baseball like the football season, one game doesn't always cure you. And, and sometimes there are one games that feel that way. I think going back to that Tampa series, I probably acted that way with one of the drive home podcasts on that comeback win. But in general, like I looked at Tuesday or Monday because it was game one was Monday and said, nice, it, it's, it's a nice victory. But now you got to go out and win the series. 
Now you got to go out there and keep it going. And it was never going to be easy because you were staring at Framber Valdez and you were staring at Christian Javier. And if you couldn't get the win with Verlander against Framber, you felt awful about the pitching on Wednesday with Tyler McGill, despite coming off a really good start. So the game one was great. You know, let's give Daniel Vogelbach credit. He's starting to wake up since his little respite. Scherzer was dominant. Francisco Lindor drove in five runs. And it's amazing with Lindor. Lindor's home runs and RBIs right now are, it's a good number. Like you, you look at the home runs and the RBIs and you see a guy that's on pace to probably go 30 home runs, a hundred RBIs, which I think all of us would sign for. But then you got the average and you got the OPS and you have the fact that he could disappear for days at a time. So I don't want to say he padded the numbers because he didn't pad the numbers. The Mets needed those offensive runs, especially in the third to take the early lead. But he's had such a he's had such a weird season. It's just a weird, weird year. But you look at game two, you have Verlander on the mound against Framber Valdez. And before we get into the game, I tweeted this, I think, and it was late because I started the game on DVR. So sometimes when I tweet during the game, it's disjointed time-wise. It's probably why I shouldn't tweet during games. Let's be honest. I should retire from that. It makes no sense. Because I think time-wise in like the seventh inning, I'm tweeting about the starting lineup. <laughs> and I'm tweeting, we need a freaking base runner. And I think I was doing that like the fourth inning. And I went back on it and looked at it time-wise. And I was like, I may have tweeted about wanting a base runner after they already got a base runner. I'm not sure. But let me start with the lineup. Brett Beatty should have played this game against Framber Valdez. And let me explain to you why. Framber Valdez does not dominate left-handers. In fact, left-handed hitters have actually done a pretty good job against Framber Valdez. I'm not going to bore you with the numbers. Just trust me on it. If you want to fact-check me, go fact-check me. That, that's on you. Brett Beatty has done probably equally as well against lefties as he has righties. He has certainly not looked overwhelmed facing left-handed pitching. So why are you in a rush, if you're Buck Showalter, to sit Brett Beatty down? Unless you're just playing the traditional tough lefty, he's a lefty game, there was no evidence, there's no statistical evidence that would have pointed you in the direction of insisting on sitting Brett Beatty. I don't get it, especially coming off a game in which Beatty had multiple hits. So he's showing you a little bit of a pulse. And that's the frustrating thing. I wanted Beatty in that lineup. So that's issue number number one that I had, just sitting down watching this game. Other than that, I, I got no problem with Tommy Pham playing every day. Tommy Pham's been one of their better hitters. He has now earned himself playing time. I got no issue with that. Mark Canna has played well lately. He should have been the DH. So lineup-wise, I don't know. I don't have any issue with really anything other than the fact that I'm ready to see Brett Beatty play even more than he's already playing. I just don't think it made sense to sit him against Valdez. I don't think there was any reason for it. Now, Framber went out and dominated. Framber Valdez, uh, Pete and I know this well. We orchestrated a trade a couple of weeks ago in which I dumped Framber Valdez to him. Not dump. I, I My team sucks. I'm selling. Sometimes you got to know when to hold him and know when to fold him. And I sold Framber Valdez to Pete Hoffman because his team is good and my team isn't. So I've watched him a lot this season. Pete's now been watching him a lot this season. But even the last couple of years, guy takes the ball every five days. He's tremendous. And what I, what I respect about him is he doesn't even look like a good pitcher. He looks kind of like out of shape. Like he's just, he's there. He has a great story too. Like he was signed at an older age. 
He was signed when he was 21 years old, which may not sound old, but usually those kids are signed like kids from where he's from are signed when they're like 16 years old. So he wasn't a really highly regarded prospect and he's worked his ass off and he's become one of the best pitchers in baseball. Like in my opinion, he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. And so the Mets not being able to hit him, like I don't want to give the Mets an excuse, but I get it. He's a great pitcher. What the Mets needed was for Justin Verlander to pitch like a great pitcher and match him zero for zero. And then maybe in the sixth or seventh or eighth inning, in this case, you'll get to him or you'll get him out of the game. And Verlander looked great for the first two innings, but that third inning was a disaster. And the biggest disaster was not the sacrifice fly to Jose Altuve to go down one nothing. It happens. He gave up a double to this Corey Jolks. Okay. He gave up a single to Martin Maldonado. Okay. My issue is on 3-0 and to Alex Bregman, a former teammate. He cooked one right down the middle, and Bregman didn't miss it. And being down one nothing to Framber Valdez, okay, fine. Being down 3 nothing to Framber Valdez, it felt like you were down by 20. To Verlander's credit, he settled in, and he pitched into the seventh inning, but then with two outs and a runner on third, and it's still 3 nothing. base hit Jose Altuve. Killer. So Verlander goes seven innings, four runs. How do you want to describe that performance? You want to say it was great? Eh, eh, it was okay. But when you're against another ace, like Framber Valdez, that ain't good enough. Now, we got teased. I'll give the Mets offense this. This is what Buck loves. They showed fight. This is like Buck, a Buck specialty. They showed fight. They're down 4 nothing to Valdez in the eighth. They get the first two guys on base. McNeil hits the ball hard. It's right at somebody. Canna hits the ball hard. It's right at somebody. Escobar comes through with an RBI single, and the Mets is set up with Brandon Nimmo up as the tying run. Brandon Nimmo. See, here's the thing I, I say to you. We could take five minutes and rip almost everybody on this roster. Rico Bronia podcast, we usually go about an hour, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. If we spent five minutes on everybody that has sucked this season, it would take us 12 hours. So let's spend a few seconds on Brandon Nemo. Has Brandon Nemo sucked this season? No, I wouldn't say he has sucked this season. I know he made the big error against the Yankees. That wasn't called an error. Offensively, though, he's been like a balloon that's sinking right now. He went over five in the opener and had some bad at-bats striking out a bunch of times. In game two of this series against Framber Valdez, he was 0 for three with two strikeouts, and those strikeouts were ugly. And he comes up in the eighth inning, fourth time he's seen Valdez. He's the tying run. If this is a year ago, Nimmo hits a game-tying two-run home run. But this ain't 2022, if you haven't noticed. And Brandon Nimmo hits a weak-ass pop-up the shortstop, which essentially ends the game. Because here's what happens with the Mets. They may have this big rally in the seventh or eighth, and once they come up short, it's lights out, and it's see you later, like Sunday against St. Louis, like Tuesday against the Astros, like Wednesday against the Astros. Because once Nimmo popped up, it was good night, see you later. And they lost. And it was a frustrating loss because Verlander was eh, but that 3-0 pitch to Bregman really kills me. The Met lineup did nothing against Valdez. In fact, they were perfected for the first... I guess it was five and a third innings of this game. 
and they finally show a pulse in the eighth inning. They hit into some bad luck, absolutely. And then Brandon Nimmo, who has been awful in this series, or at least was awful in this series, hits a weak pop-up to shortstop, and that's it. And they lose. And once they lost Tuesday, tell me if I'm wrong, Pete, I knew the series was dead because they weren't winning with Tyler McGill on the mound against Chris John Javier the next day. I wasn't sure how the game would go. We'll get to that in a second. But once they lost game two, it was like, hey, I hope you enjoyed game one because it meant nothing. They're about to lose another series. Yeah, it's it's tough to uh it's tough to get excited about this this team. Once they lose the game, you feel like the the bottom's about to drop. And but they haven't even hit rock bottom yet, which is crazy. And real quick just about the Nimmo stuff, and I don't know the pile on, but there's so many aspects of Nimmo's game that have been, and this is the word you're looking for, disappointing. It, there's so much. Like again, the the defense we've talked about already. The base running, like that was something I was looking forward to. He still got three stolen bases from the beginning of the season. He there's some at bats where he's still that juggernaut. He'll see ten plus pitches, and then there's other that he'll swing the first one. It's like what are we? It just seems like a total. He either he's just checked out or the fundamentals are gone for the Mets. That's really what it comes down to. I think Nimmo has had. Like, overall, I think his defense has been good, right? I'll start there. I think it has been good. I don't want to harp on the one misplay against the Yankees. It did cost him a game, and it was a bad play. But I think overall, his defense has been really, really good. For whatever reason, he's 50 times better on the road than he is at home. I can't figure that one out. He has never developed into a base dealer, to your point. Uh, I think there was a hope with the bigger bases he would develop into a base dealer. That hasn't happened. And he's had days, like the first two games against the Astros recently, where he's just looked really, really bad. And through the month of June, when this team has played badly, I mean, he's hitting 220. And he set the bar very high because he got off to a great start. He was hitting 330 through April. And through the month of June, which has been a terrible month for this team, he's hitting 220. That's what he is. And they're just missing that big hit also. And I don't want to sit here ripping the offense because the truth is that's not their biggest problem. <laughs> it's not. As we saw in the finale of this series, and as I mentioned here at the top of the pod with all the games where they've scored plenty of runs and they've come up short, this finale against the Astros was so freaking painful because, as I said to you many, many times, watching a game while live on the air is brutal. It is just the worst. It's the worst because... I'm sitting next to Craig who just wants, he wants it to be entertaining. And for him, and by the way, that's great. Like we're on the radio. That's our number one job. But in his mind, and he's right, the most entertaining thing is pain. The most entertaining thing is frustration. The most entertaining thing is exactly what happened in the finale of this series. The Mets have an awful top of the first capped by a bad bottom of the first. And then the teases. Ooh, they took the lead. They're up three to two. Ooh, it's four to two. Ooh, they're down six, four. Ooh, it's six, six. Oh, they're ahead now. Oh, they're behind. Like, that's the worst. It's the worst when you're dealing with it on air. So I'll walk you through watching this game and all the issues that just drove me nuts. And again, watching the game as closely as I can. I'm not scoring it. It's it's on while we're doing a show. In the top of the first inning against Chris John Javier, 
They are set up with everything. Nimmo draws a walk. Marte gets hit by a pitch and luckily is okay. And Lindor draws a walk. And at this moment, with bases loaded, nobody out, and Pete Alonso coming up, didn't say this on the air, said this to myself, they have to score two runs right now. Two. That's my number. Two. Okay? And you can do that without a base hit. You can. Alonzo, it's a deep fly ball to right field, sacrifice fly, runner goes to third, Tommy Pham, sacrifice fly, call it a day. You have to get two runs. Knowing full well, by the way, that two runs ain't going to be enough because Tyler McGill, despite how well he pitched on Friday, and I give him all the credit for that, no one in their right mind thought he was going to do it again. Not one person. No one said, oh, he's going to put together back-to-back starts. I think I even said to you on the last Rico, despite how well he pitched Friday, let's keep an eye on Joey Lucchese. It may be time. So they have bases loaded, nobody out. And Alonzo does that little check swing back to the mound, which is a disaster because with competent defense, that's a one, two, three double play. The same double play Lindor had last week, the one, two, three double play. Bases loaded, nobody out. He got bailed out by Brett Beatty. Remember that? I think that was Friday against St. Louis, if memory serves correct. So Alonzo does the check swing. And look, he's out of the baseline. But I see a bad throw to first. Mets get bailed out, one nothing, second and third one out, great. But quickly, because again, I'm on mute, we're doing a radio show, I see, uh-oh, they called Alonzo out for running out of the base pets, which he was, he was. I get that, I understand that, but I'm getting so sick and tired. Uh, and this is just probably the frustrations of being six games under 500. i I'm so sick and tired of Buck Showalter walking out of that dugout just to confirm what happened. Like, hey, hey, hey guys, what? So, so you called that he ran out of the out of the baseline? Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Thanks, great. I'm now going to go back and sit down. Thank you for telling me, Brian Honora. Thank you, Pat Holberg. Hey, Pat, great. Thank you. Like, this man leaves the dugout to do what? To just confirm what we already saw? Is that what he does? No, I get. You get argue, argue, you go crazy. What does it mean? It probably doesn't mean anything. I acknowledge that. I'm just giving you my emotions as a fan that it's just annoying watching him politely stroll out of that dugout to what ask a freaking question i'll answer it for you buck alonzo ran out of the baseline they called him out that's what happened what why do you say it doesn't do anything at all like we're waiting for a spark and the manager is showing zero i mean the team's showing zero the manager is is emphasizing the zeroness of no, the no, team Pete. He can get thrown out of the game and maybe it does spark the team. I'm just saying I can't, I don't expect that it's going to work, but try it. Yeah. Like I'm on your side. I'm the one saying, why is he going out there to have a freaking conversation? Like they're about to drink tea. You could do something. You can yell and scream. I'm not against that. Go ahead. Yell and scream. (sighs) So Alonzo's called out. He's out of the baseline. Tommy Pham draws a walk. And here's Jeff McNeil, and it's it's time. I'm sorry, guys. Now let's just rip him a new ass with his 267 average and his 686 OPS. Jeff McNeil has sucked this year. He just has. That's just the reality. The guy won the batting title last year, but it wasn't just winning the batting title. He'd get an extra base hit once in a while. He'd come through in a big spot. Last year, Jeff McNeil singles and drives in two, and overcomes the Alonzo double play. And instead, McNeil hits the softest pop-up in the world. And there you go. 
The Mets have the bases loaded, nobody out, they don't score. They reload the bases with two outs, they still don't score. And I said on the air to Craig, we're done. The game, the game is over. Now, don't interpret that as I'm shutting the game off. I'm not shutting the game off. I hope I'm wrong. I hope the Mets shut me up. But my feeling was, after that first inning, we're dead. Like, you could just put it to bed. We're dead. And, of course, in the bottom of the first inning of this game, with the immortal Tyler McGill on the mound, he gives up a one-out double. We get to catcher's interference. So if you've got the bad baseball bingo card and you had running out of the baseline, bases loaded, nobody out, can't score, manager looks lifeless, I got great news for you. We just added catcher's interference. Oh, but would you like a few wild pitches? Sure, here's two of them, including one in which Omar Narvaez makes a lazy-ass effort to try to block the ball in the dirt. Where's Francisco Alvarez when you need him? And so let's look up. It's 2 nothing, 2 nothing. That's great. See you later. Now, the Mets showed fight, Pete. That's what Buck likes. Starling Marte, two-run double. Francisco Lindor, sack fly. We're back in business. The Mets are up three to two. There's life. Daniel Vogelbach's ripping RBI doubles. It's 4-2 Mets. And not for a second did any of us think Tyler McGill was going to make it stand up. Not for a second. Especially in the fourth or the third when he issues a leadoff walk. Gives up a base hit. They're running all over him. Corey Jolks gets a single. And all of a sudden, it's tied at four. And you just know. You just know. Even when Daniel Vogelback comes through again. I mean, Daniel Vogelback was, was great this week. And I guess the mental break helped him. Stunningly enough. And the Mets come back. And it's 6-6. And then I think it was the uh, Dominic Leone comes into this game in the fourth inning and he gives up the home run to uh, Yonner McCormick? Diaz. Yonner is it McCormick? Diaz. Yeah. Oh, McCormick's coming up. You're right. He hit one, one two. <laughs> I forget when he hit it. <laughs> what a disaster. So Tyler Miguel is the real reason they lost this game, despite all the other little mistakes that they made. You know, when your starting pitcher goes out and gets knocked out in the third inning and he walks four guys and he gives up five runs, uh, that's him. You can't expect your bullpen, as we've talked about many times, to bail you out. And Dominic Leone, who actually has pitched well up until this game on Wednesday, as you mentioned, gives up a home run to Chase McCormick, gives up a home run to Yiner Diaz, and it's just, it's ugly. Then you've got Brandon Nimmo getting thrown out at second base, trying to stretch a single into a double on a ball hit off the wall. My reaction watching the game uh, with Craig was challenge it. It looked close enough to challenge. Do I think they overturn it? Probably not because they ruled him out on the field. But I did have that, hey, you got to challenge it. And then, of course, an inning later on the little bun safety squeeze play at the plate, that was another spot where Buck could challenge. But I don't think he was ever going to win that one. But the one with Nimmo at second base, I think it was the seventh or eighth inning. That one would have been worth the risk. So think about this about the great Brandon Nimmo we've had fun with today. He gets his one hit in the series, and he runs out of it by trying to go to second base, and he's thrown out at second. So he was one for 11 in this series against Houston. And the one base hit involves him being thrown out at second base. 
just this game had everything. It had everything. The bad starting pitching, wild pitches, catcher's interference, leaving a million guys on base, non-challenges, lifeless manager. Uh, What didn't it have? It had everything that you have on a bad baseball team. The Mets were able to show you in the finale of this series, the rubber game of this three-game series. Let me ask you a question because I'm sitting here thinking about this as a, as a, as a, as a whole. Like last year, we they, they kept on winning games in spectacular ways. Like, have we lost like a good normal game, or does everything feel like it's extra, like terrible? Like it's not a like we say they can't hold on to a lead for crap. They they take the lead in one inning and the the bullpen's giving it right back. But has there been like I don't feel like it's just a normal loss. Like, oh, it's just a loss or whatever. It was just a good pitcher, good pitching duel. It is what it is. It always feels like it's extra. Yeah, the only one that comes close is probably game two of this series because there is that respect level for Framber Valdez where, okay, guy dominated for the first seven innings. They did have the rally in the eighth inning, the tease, as I like to say. But yeah, and that's what's so opposite of last year i remember throughout the year we were keeping track of our favorite wins of the year and the worst losses of the year and they never really had bad losses they they really didn't they never had until the end obviously they did at the end against atlanta and san diego they never had these brutal losses and now it's just consistent it's on an every series basis when you look at the way they lost some of the games to St. Louis, specifically the finale of the series, the way they lost the finale to the Houston Astros, look at these rubber games that they've lost, where if you win both of those games, they're still not in great shape, but we're feeling better about this team. And I think what makes it so difficult to feel good about this team or to find optimism, to find silver linings, is that it is now the summer. School is out for most kids. It is late June. We are a couple of weeks away from the 4th of July. Like, we are here. And they are showing no signs of turning it around. And you continue to hear these comments of, like, Daniel Vogelback, who, look, he was the MVP of the of the series. So I'm going to give Vogie credit. He played very well. I mean, think about what he did. I mean, think about what he did in game one and game three of this series. Guy was awesome. I'm not saying that sarcastically. He deserves the props when necessary. We've spent a lot of time ripping him, DFA him. He shouldn't be in the lineup. I'm not trying to say everything's fixed, but he clearly had two great games against the Astros. So Daniel Vogelback is feeling himself a little bit. And he says to the media, I know we're going to turn it around. I know we're going to have a winning streak. I'm not sure when, but I know it's going to happen. I don't know how you can have that confidence. Because even if the team is scoring runs like they have to a degree, the pitching is so bad and so inconsistent that how are you ever supposed to put together a winning streak? And what's crazy to think about is if this pitching staff was decent, not great, decent, They're above 500. That's why this goes back to something I was saying to you back in May. There are nights and days to rip this lineup. There are nights and days to rip the lineup construction. There are nights and days to be frustrated about their lack of big hits. I've spent time doing it. We've done it on today's podcast. We'll never ignore that the offense isn't perfect, but it ain't their biggest issue. 
Because if they pitched halfway well, they'd be okay. Their pitching is a disaster. And it's everybody. Max Scherzer was great this week. We have no idea what he'll be next week. Justin Verlander has been up and down. Kodai Senga has been up and down. Carlos Carrasco has mostly been down. Tyler McGill, despite last Friday, has mostly been down. And this bullpen, you know, outside of David Robertson, is not good. Dominic Leone's had some moments. I give him props for that. Josh Walker, despite getting pounded on that line drive off his leg or whatever, has looked okay. But this is a crap bullpen with a crap rotation. Yeah, and then on top of that, like, not for nothing, I understand they need arms because they use them every freaking day. Uh, like, they go to them in the fourth or fifth inning or whatever. But, like, John Curtis looked good the other day. He gets optioned. Like, the guy that actually pitched, pitched no. well is is not available. He'll be back. Okay, so what's going on with that is because they're pitching minus Drew Smith, who's still on the roster but can't pitch, they got to use guys with options to send down to get you a fresh arm. So Grant Hartwig was the guy who was the fresh arm. He was the guy who they said, okay, let's call him up. And he's a great story. And he made his major league debut and he, you know, walked a million guys in the finale of this series. But so far, hasn't given up an earned run. So he's got a zero ERA. Good for him. It's not a knock on John Curtis more than it is. They have to use the guys with options just to get another pitcher up here. Dominic Leone doesn't have options. They DFA Dominic Leone is gone. So I think, unfortunately, for John Curtis, he was just a victim of the numbers game. And he'll be back at some point. Yeah, but but can I ask you a question? Do you think it's the end of the world if you DFA Dominic Leone? It is because not the end of the world. I don't want to say that. It's it's not smart only because you're just losing an arm, and they but, don't have a lot of arms. John Curtis, but, they didn't lose. They just sent them down. He'll be back in ten days. My God, this is what's killing me right now. This is the whole Tommy Hunter thing. This is the whole Vogelback thing. Even though he's finally hot, like just because you're afraid of losing them doesn't mean you shouldn't get rid of them. Like. The, no, but wait, yeah. wait a second. Wait a second. Dominic Leone. I, I got to defend Dominic Leone. I can't believe oh. this. This is where we are on the podcast right now. This is where we are in the season. Dominic Leone's pitched really well over the last week and a half. Like he was terrible against the Astros. I'm not defending what he did in the finale of this series, but he got the loss. He was he sucked. But the games against the Yankees, dude was great. Dude was great. He pitched like he got left five outs in the first game of the series. The series against the Cardinals, he pitched well. He got a huge strike out of Nolan Arenado with guys on base. Uh, I'm not saying he's a world beater and he'll be a forgotten man in the history of the New York Mets sooner rather than later. And he probably will get DFA'd at some point. But let's not act like, oh, my God, they should have gotten rid of him. The guy pitched well over the last couple of weeks. I just for for a team that's desperate to get something right. And you're right. Like, he hasn't pitched the worst. But in those moments, you're like, oh, my God, there's no one better in this organization than Dominic Leon. That That's the other issue, Pete. They don't have <laughs> a lot of pitching. They they just don't. They don't have bullpen arms that are coming up that excite you. They don't have starting pitching options that come up and excite you. They are they the bereft of pitching. They just are. And that's why we're here. That's why we're sitting here at 34 and 40 more than anything else. And the only way out of this is something that's very unlikely, which is that their starting pitchers just have to start to pitch awesome because you can overcome 
the lack of a bullpen. You can. You can hide it a little bit if you're getting really good, effective, deep starting pitching performances. So I'll wave a magic wand. I don't expect any of this to happen. But if Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer are who we know or think they are or used to be, and Kodai Sanger just starts clicking, and Carlos Carrasco is the guy from a year ago, you can hide this crap bullpen. But when you go to your bullpen in the third inning, which they did in the finale of this series, you can't hide it. It's right there in front of you. So the only thing that can save us, the only thing that can save us, are those starting pitchers I just mentioned, and Quintana, who's on his way back, you want to throw him in there, or Joey Lucchese, who should be called up tomorrow to get Tyler McGill's ass off this roster. I've seen enough. It is now almost July. I have seen enough. Give me Lucchese. He's pitched well in AAA. Give him a second shot. Adds a lefty to the rotation, which they don't have. Let's go. But that's the only thing that's going to turn this thing around is those starting pitchers have to be better because right now it, it, it adds up. You get bad starting pitching. That's bad enough. Now you go into your bullpen in the third inning. That's even worse. And now you're losing games even when you score eight runs. All right. So here's the big picture situation. 34 and 40. You just said you made it a uh, point to talk about you got rid of Fran Bravaldas and your fantasy baseball team because you're selling. <laughs> you you looked at the picture and said, okay, we, we, you, you had to sell, which I'm amazed you even did that. That being said, the Mets, a lot of people are saying they have to do what's right. It's time. They need to be sellers. A, what are they saying? B, who's doing the selling? Well, okay. So before we even get into any of that stuff, there is no need to make a decision like that. There's no need to declare today the Mets are sellers, the Mets are buyers, the Mets are squatters. It's irrelevant. No one is selling and nobody's buying in late June. So I'll give you a date. I did this with the Nets when I uh, used to have time to do a Brooklyn Nets podcast. I remember before they blew it up with Durant and Kyrie, I said to my guy, Mike, I said, I forget the date I used, January 20th, whatever it was. I said, if they don't turn it around by January 20th, I want everybody gone. I want to blow it up. With this team, it's July 20th. It's That's a month from now. Let's see where they are. Right now, they look like a team that may be more buried than they are today. They're seven games back in the loss column or whatever it is. They are a ways away. They are trailing every team in the National League but St. Louis, Washington, and Colorado. If that's where they are in late July, then we could have a selling conversation even though there isn't much to sell. I just think right now on June 21st, 22nd, 23rd, it's irrelevant. Like right now, they look like a bad team. Right now, they look like a team that should be on their way to selling. But again, what are they selling, which we'll discuss. Uh, But I just don't think it's, it's just not worth a discussion now because there's a month. And are they going to stun us and go win 10 out of 12? Probably not. But if they do then why were we discussing selling in late June? You know what I mean? Like, it's it's stupid. Sometimes things take care of itself, and it becomes very obvious. Right now, it feels obvious. We're not there yet. Let's see what this looks like in a month. Though right now, my confidence level is it ain't going to look much better. Yeah, that's the whole, that's the whole issue, because I'm still trying to be as optimistic as possible. And I, I think, like, I got a text today from our good buddy Harris Allen. He said he's done. 
He's like, what what does that mean though? That Harris is Harris is a great Matt fan, as we know, worked at the station for a million years, but he's done with what? Like he stops watching? No, no, but he, he's, he's given up on the season as being a success. He's, he's realized that this team is, is bad and accepts what's going to come another disappointing season. Okay. So here's the problem with all this. I think the Mets are probably done. I think that the season to me died somewhere during the Subway series, but really over the weekend against St. Louis. That was my moment of, we're screwed. This is not turning around. Me telling you that here on the Rico Bronia is my opinion. That's all it is. I hope I'm wrong. I'm giving you my opinion, knowing, God, I hope I'm making fun of myself in late August and September. I'm not going to stop watching games. I don't think most of our listeners are going to stop watching games. So I'm just offering an opinion. But that opinion is not going to make me feel better when they blow a game on Friday night against Philadelphia. So even though, oh, I'm mentally telling everybody the season's over, we're done, we're dead, that's not going to make losing easier. And it ain't going to work for Harris either. Harris Allen could say all day, oh, yeah, we're done, I've accepted it. You haven't accepted it. Because if you're sitting there on a Friday night watching Apple TV, Mets, Phillies, and they blow a 5-2 to two lead in the ninth inning, trust me, you haven't accepted a damn thing. So all of us could play these games. Like, I'm going to go through these emails in a second, and you're going to hear a lot of that. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm this. I'm that. Look, if you're not going to watch the games anymore, that's fine. Like, that, that's up to you. But if you're still watching the games, then you're not really done. You just think they're done, and you hope you're wrong. All right, let me get to some of these emails. I don't even know where to start. I got so many. Should I start Monday? Uh, okay. Yeah, let's start with a mid-game tweet from Monday while Scherzer's dominating. Al Gel- Gelsomino writes, if he blows this game, he better go on the IL or retire. <laughs> Giuseppe Menino writes, subject line, the mercenary piece of crap. Hey, Evan. First time emailing you, I was shocked to see Scherzer pitch past the sixth inning, and all I could think of is the shock going through your head as he comes out for the eighth. And by the way, I was the guy calling you Tomas Nito at the softball game. (laughs) Thank you, Giuseppe. Oh, boy. Alex Barrios. This is great. I love the confident emails. Again, this is all Monday. Mets are winning and have won a game. Alex, you naive little bastard. I'm just kidding, Alex. You naive little wonderful person. The Mets showed what could happen if they play with confidence. Max's slaughter was filthy. Vogie's putting it together. Lindor had a nice five ER, five RBI game. Let's build on this. <laughs> Allison Kane writes, I'm so happy Craig is. Oh, no, that's something different. Thank you, Allison. But no, when I, when I get into that. Uh, let's see. Casey Manning is very upset. There's no team that takes good feelings and completely wipes their asses with them like the New York Mets. Well said, Casey. I get Valdez has been nasty tonight, but the at-bats are entirely uncompetitive. They have zero shot of ever getting hot because they can't put together complete games. The only way they get back into this is by winning seven or eight straight, and there's just no way in hell they accomplish that. The season is slowly dying, and we're just innocent bystanders, yet again going down with the ship. Just a disappointment of epic proportions. But hey, at least we get to watch Daniel Vogel back every day. How lucky are we? You are right. We do have the look. (laughs) 
We're very lucky. We get to watch Vogie every single day. Fred Solomon writes, this team is a mess from top to bottom. Epler ran it back last winter. Buck and his staff didn't change the message after last year's finish. And this team is woefully unprepared and unmotivated on a daily basis. Things I never thought I'd say about a Buck-led team. Mental and physical errors make a team already sloppy, unwatchable. He is right about the mental errors, and I can't explain that one. They make so many of them on like a daily basis. Uh, Fred goes on to write, Buck has forgotten more baseball than I'll ever know, but his time is up. He lost the room, and he gives off the impression he doesn't care. Epler was Cohen's 10th choice, and he's showing exactly why. Neither guy has shown a sense of urgency over the last season and a half. Cohen needs to clean house. Epler, Buck, the staff, everybody. There's no excuse for a franchise-wide regression that we're seeing. Well, if the season goes like this, I don't think either of them are coming back. I agree with you about that. Um, Samuel Lowenthal. The revenge of Vogelbach. <laughs> Casey wrote back again asking me, uh, are you ready to fire Buck Showalter? Alex Barrios, who started off so confident, writes back, they need to be sellers. That is all. Alberto gave me and Lugie credit because on the air today, we kept saying the Mets will lose. The Mets will lose. And he said, uh, you basically called it all afternoon. I'm not going to get to all of his of what he wrote, but I appreciate it. Let me get to Steve Johnson. This is a good one. Steve writes, Evan Hoff, after another brutal loss in which the Mets scored eight runs and still lost, I decided to go back and see what the Mets record is when scoring four or more runs in a game. Last year, through the first half of the season, 93 games, the Mets record when they scored four more runs was 49 and three. Good research by Steve. We got to get him on the staff now. I love this. 49 and three when the Mets score four or more. This year, through 74 games, they are 27 and 18. (laughs) That's brutal. So they are basically on track to match the amount of games they have scored four more runs. It's obviously on the pitching. Of those 18 losses, Max Scherzer started two games, Verlander three, McGill four, Sangle one, and the rest were started by either Peterson, Lucchese, Carrasco, and a bullpen game. But if you think that stat is bad, this is worse. I looked up other teams' records when scoring four more runs. The Phillies have lost 11 of those games, the Marlins 11, and the Nationals, yet the Nationals, who suck, have fewer losses than the Mets do at 14. Sadly, I don't think the pitching will get any better anytime soon, especially with this bullpen. The only optimistic takeaway right now is that at least Tommy Pham and Daniel Vogelback have trade value. He is right, and I appreciate the research he did on the numbers. It's the pitching. It really, really is the pitching. And there is no answer to that other than running most of these guys out every five days. Not all of them, because Miguel, I already make the move on. I go to Joey Lucchese. But with Verlander and Scherzer and Senga and maybe Carrasco, but those three specifically, they just have to continue to run those guys out every five days and hope it's a different result. And then you have Buck saying, I want to split up Max and Verlander. Why? He's like, well, they usually go deep in the games. Do they? And they did this turnaround, but do they usually go deep in the games? So they got the weekend against the Phillies coming up uh, with an off day on Thursday, thank God, so the Mets can't lose. 
Kodai Senga against Taiwan Walker on Friday night. I warn you, it's an Apple TV game. Carlos Carrasco is pitching the Saturday game. Uh, he's facing a lefty on Saturday, so that means uh, no Daniel Vogelback, which is just unfortunate for us. And then on Sunday, we have, at least on paper, a pretty good pitching matchup. Max Scherzer against Zach Wheeler. The Mets have done a really good job against the Phillies the last couple of years. Eventually, that's going to end. They got to win this series. And I know we say that now before every, they got to win this series. They got to do this. They got to do that. They really do. Because if they fall 10 games under 500 and they're on their way, <laughs> they're, they're moving quickly towards that magic number of 10. They're at six. I think you eventually get to that point of no return. Because as we said last time on the Rico, they're already calendar-wise past the Nationals of 2019 and past the Braves of 2021 and past the Phillies of 2022. They're going to have to create their own historical comeback as they're sitting here 74 games into the season and six games under 500. Uh, Evan, it's amazing. uh, Honestly. The Mets continue to amaze me. How could this be this bad after such a good season last year and the promise? We're talking about 10 games under 500 and and the season basically being buried already in June. Yeah, the, the, the answer to that would be they are worse almost everywhere. That That's the answer. Like, they are worse outside of catcher. They are better at catcher with Francisco Alvarez. They are worse. Alonzo's a little bit worse, but he's not having a terrible season. So I don't want to say they're significantly worse, but they're significantly worse with Jeff McNeil. They're worse, not by a lot, by a little bit with Lindor. They're just worse. They're worse with Starling Marte. Starling Marte was an all-star last year. What is he now? They're worse. And then more than that, because that's a little bit. The pitching just sucks. I mean, Chris Bassett was great last year. Scherzer was great when he pitched. I'll give you another guy who was great. And I, I can't believe I'm bringing this guy up, but when you try, could you ask a great question? Hey, how do they do it last year and how do they do it this year? Last year, David Peterson made 19 starts. 19 starts. 19 starts. The Mets won 12 of the games that he started. Last year, Tyler McGill made nine starts. The Mets won seven of those games. I'll get you more specific. The Mets used five depth guys last year. David Peterson, Trevor Williams, Tyler McGill, Jose Buto, and Thomas Zapucki. Okay? 39 starts by those guys. 39. 39 starts by depth guys. 39 starts by guys who most of them are in the minor leagues right now. Zapucki is somewhere else. He was in the Darren Rupp trade. Peterson's in the minors. Williams is in D.C. Budo's in the minors. McGill's getting his ass kicked in the rotation. 39 starts from those depth guys. They were 25 and 14. 25. They were 11 games above 500 when they started depth guys. So they're pitching not just the top guys, not just the top guys, everywhere was significantly better. And that's how you somehow get this, I don't want to say best to worst because they weren't the best last year, but a 101-win team on their way to finishing under 500, which is remarkable. And we'll do this podcast later. I don't want to do it now, but we are going to have to do a heavy debate 
on the worst and most disappointing season in the history of the New York Mets, because this is up there. I had thought for a while 2017 was a big one. Big disappointment 2017. Coming off of the pennant of 15, making the playoffs despite the injuries of 16, the hope and the promise of 17. 2023 is like spitting all over 2017. Like just disgusted by it. Like, ah, you thought you were bad. So unfortunately, that's a podcast for a different day. But I'll tell you what is a podcast for tomorrow, depending on when you're listening. Maybe it's already available. But posted on Thursday night will be the podcast of the could have been off season. You've waited a long time for it. We break down the what could have been off season. We appreciate you listening, emailing, and interacting with the pod, B at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>